And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you for your word, and we remember that your word is sufficient for everything that we need. We remember that your, your word is inerrant, infallible, inspired, that it's perfect in every way, and that it instructs us in knowing you and in knowing ourselves as well, seeing ourselves clearly and seeing our need for Christ. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would nourish us today with your word, that you would feed us today with your word, that we may know Christ that we may pursue Christ, and that we may grow in His likeness through the study and application of Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 17. We'll be continuing our study in John chapter 17 today. This is uh, the chapter that contains what we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the the one prayer of Jesus where we're kind of eavesdropping, like he's talking one-on-one with the Father. And there are so many amazing things to see and to hear in this chapter. And uh, the verses we'll be coming to today will be no different. We'll be looking at verses 9 and 10 of John chapter 17. So if you need a Bible, we do have Bibles out in the foyer. They're on the counter uh, if you want to grab one. If you don't have a Bible uh, at home, feel free to take one home with you, but we do have Bibles available for you. Um, we'd be happy to, uh, to accommodate you and, and get one for you if, uh, if you need one. Uh, I think Michael's going out to get some right now. Uh, if anybody else needs one, let him know. Uh, but we, we would be more than happy to put a Bible in your hands. Uh, but today we'll be looking at uh, John chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. And as we come to this passage, let me just ask you to imagine for just a moment that you had a friend who had just a, a really amazing car, a car that he, your friend, really, really loved. And let's say that it was really expensive car, really upscale car, one that he had paid a considerable amount for and one which he always paid above and beyond to service and to keep in pristine running condition. And now let's say that you, as his friend, that you were put into a situation in which you needed a car. Maybe you got in a car accident or your car just broke down or whatever, but your friend actually offers you his car. He offers to let you borrow it for a time while your car is being repaired. So you take the keys to his car with, a, with an appropriate degree of apprehension, right? You don't, you don't want to seem too eager. Um, you agree to, uh, to take his car and to return the car to him in, let's say, two weeks' time. Knowing how much your friend not only paid for this car, but how much he loves this car. How do you think you're going to treat that car for the next two weeks? Now, I don't know about you, but if you ask me, I'd say, as, as I consider this scenario for myself, first of all, I would be way more cautious the way I drive his car than I would with my own. Uh, I, I'd 
probably drive it slower. Uh, I, I wouldn't dare drink my morning coffee in it. Can you imagine how mad he'd be if I were to spill my coffee in his car? Uh, I might even check the bottoms of my shoes every time before I get into his car just to make sure I'm not tracking in pine needles, which around here are, are like everywhere, uh, or mud. I don't want to track anything into his car. Um, and when I return the car to him, not only will I make sure that the, the gas tank is full, uh, but I'd probably even have the car washed for him just to let him know that I did take the best car, uh, care of his car that I possibly could. I think we would all say that if we were put into this scenario, we would care for the car diligently uh, because we care for our friend and we know how much our friend cares for his car. And this is an illustration of exactly how Jesus felt toward his people, those whom the Father had given to him. So today we're going to be continuing our study of John chapter 17, and uh, we're in the section of the prayer in which Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples. Uh, and, and while this part of the prayer is offered specifically for the 11 disciples, uh, the things that he says about them apply to us because the things that he says about them, such as they were given to him by the Father, uh, we learn elsewhere in John that's true of all Christians. So what he says about the disciples here actually applies to, to every Christian throughout history. So in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 17, we saw that Jesus prayed for and consecrated himself as he's prepared to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin on behalf of his people, those whom the Father had given to him. Uh, then in verses 6 to 8, uh, as he began offering intercessory prayers on behalf of the disciples, we saw that he said some really important things about the disciples and, and also true about us as well. Uh, he, he said uh, that they were gods, kind of in a general sense, and that God had given those particular 11 uh, to him. They were set apart uh, from the world. They, they were consecrated from the world for this purpose, to be given to Christ. And in time, they came to know and believe that Jesus was sent by the Father and that Christ, what everything He said, everything He taught uh, was from God, that it had the authority of God behind it. Not, they not only knew this, they not only knew this up here, they, they not only uh, understood that Jesus was God incarnate, uh, that He was the Messiah, uh, and that what He taught was true, they not only knew that stuff up here, but they also believed savingly upon Christ and they kept His Word. These are all things that are said in verses 6 to 8. Uh, so those, those first three verses of this section, verses 6 to 8, were spoken about the disciples. But now, in the verses that follow until verse 19, uh, we'll see Jesus transition to praying for them. He's been praying about them, spe speaking about them. Now He's going to pray for them. In fact, He only, he, he only prays for them here. And He's deliberate to specify that he isn't praying for people who aren't his own. He's not praying for the world. He isn't praying for natural, unregenerate humanity. He's only praying for those whom the Father had given to him. The point of the passage that we'll be looking at today is this. It's that Christ's work 
in saving us is the basis for our harmonious union with God, resulting in God being glorified in our salvation. Christ's work in saving us is the basis for our harmonious union with God, resulting in God being glorified in our salvation. So Jesus continues His high priestly prayer into verses 9 and 10 as He prays, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Now like every part and every passage in this chapter, everything that we've studied up until this point, this passage is absolutely loaded to the brim with wonderful truths about God, and it contains many things that you might refer to as uh, you know, deeper truths, uh, which require diligent and thorough and thoughtful study in order for us to truly understand and begin to wrap our minds around. But one of those deeper truths that we see immediately here is that Christ intercedes for His people in a way that He does not intercede for the world. That's what, that's what He's saying here. That's what He's referring to when, uh, when He prays this part of the prayer. What's He referring to, though, when He uses the word world here? Because as we've seen throughout our study of John, there are actually ten definitions for the Greek word that gets translated into world. And sometimes those definitions are actually opposite one another. So it's not a cut and dry word. It's not an easy word to translate always. But what we can say is it's clearly a group of people. And we can tell that because they're actually contrasted. The world is contrasted with another people group here. That being those who were given to Christ by the Father. So clearly the term world in this sense, since the, there's, a, there's a contrast being drawn, the word world refers to natural, unbelieving, rebellious, fallen humanity. And so Jesus prays for His people. He prays for those who have been given to Him by the Father in a way that He doesn't pray for those who are not His people. And the reason is very simple. It's because he's got a very different relation to those who have been given to him by the Father and to the world. He's got a totally different relationship to each group. Rather than being a mediator to the world, he's their judge. And rather than being a judge to his people, he's a mediator. He's the mediator. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus never prayed for sinners. That he never prayed for uh, rebels. They never prayed for the world. Of course he did. Uh, On Calvary, he prayed in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. But what we need to understand is that in that prayer, he was not praying as a mediator. How then was he praying? Well, what he was praying there is really how we ought to pray for our enemies. We're to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, right? And Jesus did that perfectly. That's what the law required. And Jesus had to fulfill the law. So Jesus did this perfectly in accordance with God's holy and perfect law. As a man, fully man, fully God, as a man, this was his duty just as much as it is ours. 
But as God incarnate, He was not praying as their mediator. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, Jesus said, this is on the Sermon on the Mount, He says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing when He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Here in our text, however, in John chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, Jesus makes it deliberately and indisputably clear that He is not praying for those who are not His, for those who have not been given to Him by the Father. He's not praying for anyone but those whom the Father had given Him. Now, in Reformed theology, we call this doctrine the doctrine of limited atonement. Um, although some people prefer, and I prefer, the term particular redemption. But particular redemption doesn't fit into the TULIP acronym. So uh, we've we got to come up with another acronym or just understand that uh, limited atonement, particular redemption, same thing. But this doctrine affirms that Christ is a mediator only for those who are given to Him by the Father. That is, that He intercedes in a mediatorial or representative legal sense only for those who come to Him and believe in Him savingly. And how does anybody come to Him? The Father must draw them. That's what we learned back in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one comes to Me except those who are drawn by the Father. The Bible never teaches that Christ came to make salvation only possible. No, it teaches that He came to actually save, not to merely potentially save. In Richard Phillips's words, quote, while Jesus' death extends a gospel invitation to all the world, the actual atonement was offered only for His own people whom the Father had given to Him from all eternity, end quote. Now, out of, out of all the, the, the tulip doctrines, this is the one that people like and affirm the least. Uh, people might not like this doctrine, and I, I get it. In fact, it might make them very uncomfortable. And again, I, I get it. But the truth is that if Christ came only to make salvation possible, which is the only other alternative, if, if, if you deny limited atonement, you're saying that Christ either came to save everybody, and we know that He didn't. We know that there are people who will go to hell. Or you have to say that He only came to make it possible. But if Christ only came to make salvation available. If He only came to make it possible, then nobody would be saved because we cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws us to Him. Jesus is clear about that. And we remember that the reason for that is because our fallen nature, our, our sinfulness, our pride would not allow us to go to Christ humbly for salvation. So we must be drawn to Christ by the Father. Just as Aaron didn't make a sacrifice on behalf of, uh, of, of the, the Gentiles and the people of the land who were outside of the camp, so too Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. For many. That is, those who are given to Him. It doesn't say for all. He didn't give His life as a sacrifice for all. 
He gave his life as a, as a ransom for many. As the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So there's a, there does, there's a distinction. There's a biblical distinction that's made in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But in these verses, the Lord tells us why he prays for his disciples, why he intercedes for his people as their mediator. And within these two verses, we find a total of three distinct reasons that Jesus is praying for them and for us, why he intercedes for us. The first reason is this Jesus prays for them because they belong to the Father. Look at verse 9 with me. The first reason is because they belong to the Father. He says in verse 9, I ask, or that word can be translated pray as well. I ask uh, on their behalf, I do not ask or, or pray on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me for, or because, depending on your translation, they are yours. The reason I'm praying for them, he says, is because they're yours. Now, we've already seen that all of the human race, in fact, everything that exists uh, belongs to God in a general sense. Everything in creation belongs to God. And He's therefore free to do with everything and everyone as He pleases. But one of the things that we should see here is that this is one instance of Jesus actually in, in a little bit of a roundabout way, claiming to be God incarnate because even though the disciples have been given to Jesus, He's saying they are still God's property. Who would dare claim to own what God owns when God clearly says the earth and all that dwell in it are the Lord's? Who else would say, oh, I own some of that too, except God incarnate. So in a roundabout way, Jesus is claiming to be God here. What Jesus is saying here is simply that He cherishes and that He loves and that He values the disciples because the Father cherishes and loves and values the disciples. Same as the car illustration, right? This brings us back to the illustration of the friend who has the beautiful car that he, he loves and he cherishes. And just like you're going to care for and, and cherish that car because you love and you, you cherish and you value your friendship with the guy who owns the car, Jesus, likewise, values and cherishes the disciples because God the Father loves and values and cherishes the disciples. So it's extremely important that we understand this because it has, it has implications, very deep and meaningful uh, implications for how we should view and how we should treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But before we get to that, Let's consider how this, how this is how Christ intercedes for all of His people. Because all of His people were given to Him by the Father. As we've already seen throughout John and we've seen uh, throughout this chapter. So it's not only how He intercedes for the disciples, it's also how He intercedes for us. To get the full force, the full weight of what He's saying here, Consider the fact that as surely as he's essentially saying, uh, I, I pray or I ask on behalf of Peter and of John and Thomas and so on and so forth, because they're yours and because you love and cherish and value them even as I do. He could just as well be saying, I pray on behalf of Lori and Katie and Alex and Norm 
because I know that you love and cherish them even as I do. So insert your name there. Because that's essentially the way that He intercedes for us. Would it change anything for you if you actually heard that from His lips? It should. Because the truth is, He does. He does. Even to this day, He prays for you. If you believe in Him, if you've been saved by Him, He's interceding for you even today. And knowing that should change absolutely everything for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes, present tense, present ongoing tense, He intercedes for us. It's possible to hear an amazing and wonderful truth so many times that it just becomes common for us. It stops amazing us. Uh, and it's just like anything else in, in that sense. You know, a, a new car, when you first get a new car, you know, you're, you're washing it every week. Uh, you are taking care of that. You know, you, you are, you're, you're polishing it. You know, you're, you're not just buying the cheap car wash. You're buying the expensive one. But after a couple of years, that car is pretty lucky if it gets washed even once a month, Right? Uh, we know how that is. The, the wife, uh, you know, she, she no longer gazes at the beauty of the diamond in her wedding band every hour on the hour after a few months or a few years at some point. Uh, in the same way, it's possible for us to hear and to consider that Christ Himself intercedes for us and to simply think, okay, cool, I, I get it. He prays for me. For it to no longer have that effect on us where it puts us in awe of the fact that the God who sent His only Son to redeem us would love us and value us in such a way. It was Robert Murray McShane who once said, quote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. End quote. And indeed, He is. He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. That's always what He's doing on our behalf. Jesus is zealous to pray for us because He has a perfect love for the Father, and we belong to the Father. The Father loves us. The Father values us. The Father cherishes us. And so Jesus loves and values and cherishes us because He loves and values and cherishes the Father. Now the wonderful truth that we see here is that while it's true that all who believe savingly in Christ were given to Him by the Father, the Father's love toward us and His interest in our well-being is not in any sense lessened or diminished because we're in Christ. Think of it this way. Imagine a man who gives his daughter's hand away in marriage. He loves his daughter. He cherishes his daughter. He values his daughter because that's what dads do. That's what we're supposed to feel for our daughters. But once he gives his daughter's hand away in marriage, she's under the care of another man. 
But does that father stop caring for his daughter? Does he now care for her any less than he did before he gave her away in marriage? Let me tell you, speaking from experience, the answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. And given the fact that marriage is an illustration, that it's, it's a picture of Christ's relationship to His bride, the church, this is a wonderful illustration of the Father's continuing care for those who have been given to Christ. And Christ's care for His bride, knowing that the Father continues to love and value and cherish them. That's the first reason that Christ prays for His disciples and for us in a mediatorial sense. The second reason Christ intercedes for them is because all that Christ has belongs to the Father, and all that the Father has belongs to Christ. So they are the Father's, and they are just as much Christ's. The interests of the Father and the Son are the same. In fact, the interests of the Father and the Son can't be separated because the Father and the Son are one. The Father and the Son are one. They're separate persons in the Godhead, yes, but they are one in substance, one in essence, one in nature, and one in will. One in will. This final aspect of their unity, their, their will, requires that we understand that there is only one divine will. There is only one divine will, which is entirely possessed by each of the three persons of the Trinity. Jesus, however, has two wills because He took on flesh. So He had a human nature and He had uh, the divine nature. So He has a divine will and He's got a human will. Uh, This is yet another reason that we firmly and absolutely must reject the doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son, which is becoming increasingly popular in our day. What this position requires is that one assume that the Father and the Son do not share the one divine will, but rather that each of them has a separate will, or some people are even saying that Jesus has no will. Well, that's impossible because His will was to do what the Father willed. So Jesus does have a will. You can't say that he has no will, but to say that they have different wills is very dangerous. But that position requires that one assume that the Father and the Son don't share the same will, but that the Son subordinates his will to that of the Father. And what this ends up doing is separating the persons of the Godhead into three completely separate gods who each has their own will. And so with all that said, what the Father wills, the Son wills. Not out of subordination, but by virtue of His divine nature and thus His possession of the divine will. What the Father wills, the Son wills. What the Father desires, the Son desires. What the Father has interest in, the Son has interest in. And so in one breath, what we see is Christ acknowledging here that they are the Father's. He's essentially praying they're yours. And in the next breath, He essentially acknowledges they're also mine because everything for all of eternity that belongs to you uh, as the Father also belongs to me as the Son. And everything that belongs to me as the Son belongs to you as the Father. Because the Father and the Son are one, Jesus has just as much of an interest in those given to Him by the Father as the Father has. Now the implications of this, again, are just 
uh, incredible, very astounding. We're equally loved, equally uh, cherished, equally possessed, equally valued, equally cared for by both the Father and the Son. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, quote, We could say that those who are Christ's are wrapped up in the same ball of life with the Godhead that the Lord prays for us accordingly. And he goes on to say, quote, This means that our concerns, however small, are God's concerns. And God's concerns, however noble and beyond our understanding, are our concerns also. End quote. So Jesus prays for those who are given to Him by the Father because they are the Father's. And all that the Father is concerned with, the Son is concerned with. And all that the Son is concerned with, the Father is concerned with. And of course, while the Holy Spirit isn't named here specifically, He is just as much involved in this as the Father and the Son are. But what we can say, uh, we, we can say that Christ cares in this manner for all who were given to Him by the Father, which is another way of saying that Christ cares in this manner for all Christians throughout history. And it's a reminder that our brothers and sisters in Christ are all just as much the property and possession of God as we are. And shouldn't that, shouldn't that fact have a drastic effect on the way that we not only regard God, that He would welcome us as an adopted child, but on the way also that we view one another? It should. Let me put it this way. If you lived in a kingdom in which the king was faithful to love and to care for and to provide for all the citizens of the nation, and this was a king whom you loved and who loved you and even adopted you as a child, how would you treat his other children? You would love them, and you would treat them with the same respect that you have for the king. Because you know that the king loves them and values them and cherishes them. Now, what if those children were also adopted? It would make no difference. He loves them with the same love that He has for you, and you have enough of a love for Him that you're going to treat them the way that you would treat Him because you love and you cherish Him. And indeed, this is the citizen of which we are. Uh, this is the kingdom of which we are citizens. If you are in Christ, I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about the fact that we are both citizens of heaven and children of the Most High God through adoption. If we love the Lord, if we love God, how can we not also love those whom He loves with such a great love that He gave His only Son as a sacrifice to save them just as much as He sent His Son to die as a sacrifice for you? Do you not love what God loves? That's one of the goals of the Christian life. Is to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. God loves His people. And so we should love His people. If you love what God loves, then you must also love whom God loves. Now this is in no way or sense to be taken to mean that we should accept every profession of faith 
as valid. For example, we won't accept the profession of faith of a modalist. Somebody who says that there's uh, one God and that there aren't three persons. Those are three manifestations. Uh, Jesus is the Father and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. That's what a modalist believes. That's a heresy. So we don't accept their profession of faith. We don't accept the profession of faith of a Mormon. We don't accept the profession of faith of a Jehovah's Witness. Why? Because they have completely false, completely heretical views of who God is. The Spirit of truth is not in them. And I would likewise argue that anyone who affirms a system of belief which boils down to faith plus anything, faith plus works, faith plus baptism, faith plus do all the sacraments, do this, do that, anybody that that affirms any system of belief that boils down to faith plus anything is also not to be counted among those with a valid profession of faith because faith plus anything is an outright denial of the doctrine of salvation sola fide salvation by grace alone through faith alone which is at the heart of the gospel. Uh, th- that's where this becomes a Galatians chapter 1 issue. Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 1, uh, because they've been presented with a faith plus something else gospel, he says to them that this is a different gospel, which is not really another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What he's saying is there's only one gospel. It is faith alone. And if you deny that, if you add anything to it, that's not another gospel. That's just a false idea. The idea that we, that our current age has, that we must pursue unity at all costs, is a satanic lie. That is a satanic lie. False views of God, false views of the gospel are the most offensive thing in the world to the biblically minded Christian because those things are offensive to God as well. We are united not by just a desire to have a big tent. No, we're united by truth. Truth about who God is. Truth about the Gospel. These are truths that the church has affirmed and held to for 2,000 years. If we pursue these truths, we will find unity with the body of Christ. But we'll also find division between us and those who have not believed in the true gospel. But for those who are truly saved, for those whose profession of faith is valid, as, as far as we can tell anyway, and that they affirm the, the true gospel, the only gospel, if we understand what Jesus is saying here about how the persons of the Godhead are united in their love and their concern and interest for those given to Christ. How can we ever dare treat our brothers and sisters who are children of the King as less than that? We shouldn't. And yet if you look on social media these days, Twitter, Facebook, wherever, you would never guess that the majority of Christians love and value and care for their brothers and sisters who believe differently than we do on secondary issues, but with whom we have unity on primary doctrines. Yes, we go to war on those primary doctrines, such as sola fide. Yes, we will shed our own blood for that doctrine if we have to. Yes, we will even gladly die on hills of primary doctrines. But I fear that in our day and age with social media, Far too many Christians are going to war on secondary issues that they have mistaken for primary issues, especially on social media. 
knowing the way that God loves and cares for His children should have a drastic effect on how we view and treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. And how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ should be one thing about us, one aspect of our lives that glorifies God, glorifies Christ, because our unity is through Him. That should be one thing that glorifies Christ before the world around us. And that brings us to the third reason that Christ intercedes. The first reason that Christ prays for His disciples and us is because they belong to the Father. The second reason He prays for them and us is because all who belong to the Father belong just as much to the Son. And the third reason that He intercedes for them is because in them and through them He is glorified. Jesus says, All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Now He's speaking of the disciples at this point. What an amazing thing to consider that Christ's glory is invested in the salvation of lowly, wretched sinners like you and me, family. Like the disciples. Like anyone who's ever been saved. Does it blow your mind that God loves to save sinners? That He loves to save the, the, the lowly, the vile, the outcast, the rebel? Does that make you just stop dead in your tracks and, and find yourself in, in awe? Does it humble you? It should. It should do all these things when you realize that Christ's glory is actually invested in our salvation. There's actually an element of mystery to this, isn't there? If you think about it, you might wonder why Christ would invest His own glory in our salvation. And the answer is we don't know. We don't know. Uh, I mean, why, why me instead of somebody else? Why, why did He choose someone uh, you know, like me when He could have chosen somebody who was far more moral than I was? He could have chosen somebody who uh, had a lot more influence than, than I have. Why didn't He choose someone uh, you know, who, who looked better, who spoke better, who, you know, all these things in, instead of us? Why did He put His glory on the line for us specifically? And the answer is, we don't know. But He did. But He did. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. God hasn't revealed why He has saved us particularly. It's not for us to know. That's that's for Him to know. All we know is that He has. He has invested His own glory in our salvation. So then the answer becomes, how? How is Christ glorified in the disciples or in our lives? And there are more answers to, to that question than we have time for today, but uh, we'll consider at least a few of them. Uh, first, Christ is glorified in God's grace being shown to lowly sinners. Christ is glorified in God's grace being shown to lowly sinners. Think of it this way. If you want to prove how good a baseball coach is, you don't give him the best players in the league and put them on the field. You give him some players who aren't really that good. Maybe they'd be riding the bench for most of their, uh, most of their careers, for most games. Give those players to him. The, the players who have a lot of room to develop. The, the, the players who have a lot of potential that has not been realized yet. A good coach can teach them the skills and bring them together 
to give them what they need to succeed and to win. Think about uh, like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan played with a lot of guys who would have, aside from him, apart from him, they would have been completely unknown. They would have been forgotten. His teams might have had one or two other guys who were worthy of being on the all-star team, but Jordan's greatness as a basketball player was seen in the fact that his teams won even though his teammates, for the most part, were not as good as their counterparts on the opposing teams. And it's the same with Christ's glory in saving His people by grace and grace alone. When the murderer becomes a gentle pacifist, when the addict becomes straight, when the adulterer becomes a faithful and loving spouse, when the lowly sinner is transformed by a power that is clearly not from within themselves, Christ is glorified because it's entirely by His grace, the outpouring of His grace working within sinners, that those things happen. Second, Christ is glorified by His people being set apart. And when I say set apart, I mean different from the world. The Bible says we're not to be friends with the world. We're not to look like the world. We're not to think like the world. We're not to act like the world. We're to be different, set apart. While the world around us values and pursues things like power and prominence and position and popularity at any cost, we value things like faithfulness to Christ, righteousness, and obedience. We we desire God's ways and we seek the approval of God over the approval of men, even over the approval of family if necessary. And that is often the case, or at least it can be. Christ isn't glorified, friends, by us looking and thinking and speaking just like the world around us. But He is glorified in our not looking and thinking and speaking like the world around us. Because people on the broad road that leads to destruction have different values than do those who are on the narrow path that leads to life. Third, similar to previous points, Christ is glorified in our turning from works of darkness and committing ourselves to doing good works in His name. Now this isn't to say that we're saved by being good and moral, obedient people. We're not. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by Christ's obedience. Amen? We are not saved by being moralists. So this isn't to say that we're obedient and that we turn from sin in order to be saved, but that we do it because we are saved. James says, faith, if it has no works, is dead. He goes on to say, faith without works is useless. Faith is like a seed that produces fruit. Good fruit. Fruit that is pleasing to God. Fruit that glorifies God. Christ. The natural man does, quote-unquote, good works for the glory of who? Himself. But is this not why we do good works? In order that Christ would be glorified by them? This includes everything that we do, by the way, to advance and to extend His kingdom. Why do we share the Gospel? Why do we hand out tracts? Why do we go to church Why do we disciple our kids? Why do we pray? Why do we study the Scriptures? Why why do we give from our income to the church? 
Why do we turn from sin? Now, of course, there are personal benefits to all of these things, but our primary motivation in all these things should be that Christ would be glorified in our lives, and He is. Fourth, and again, similar to the previous ones, Christ is glorified by our obedience. Remember that we weren't only saved from the penalty of sin. We weren't only saved from hell. Jesus did die to save us from hell in the future, but He also died to save us from the power of sin in the present. So how do we avoid sinning? How do we break free from sin's power? By walking in obedience to Christ. That's, there are only two choices. The list goes on and on of ways that Christ can be glorified in our lives. But the point that I want us to see here is that Christ's work in saving us is the basis for our harmonious fellowship and union with God, which results in God being glorified in our salvation. What's astounding here, as we consider what Christ just said, that in His disciples He has been glorified. What's amazing is that the, the faith of the disciples at this point is still so small and so frail. And in an hour, it's just going to burst into pieces when Christ is arrested. And what do His disciples do? They run for it. They, they run for the hills. They, they run for their lives, right? They, they were going to save themselves at any cost. They don't stand by Christ. Their faith is still so small and so weak. They have so much maturing. They have so much growing to do. And yet, even with their small faith, even with their frail faith, even with their weak faith, Christ says that He has been glorified by them just as today He is even by us, regardless of how small or how weak or how frail our faith is may be. He's still glorified by it. Do you desire for Christ to be glorified in your life and in your salvation? This is our motivation. Not only for things like evangelism, but also for praying for those and reaching out to those who do not know Christ. And for standing in unity with those with whom we stand uh, united on primary doctrinal issues. And when we're divided from those who don't stand with us on primary doctrinal issues, we must continue to stand for the truth against them, but also to pray for them. Because it's only right, it's only right that we should desire that Christ would be glorified in their salvation as well. As you leave here today, friends, Consider the incredible honor. Consider the incredible privilege that you have in being so greatly loved, so greatly valued, so greatly cherished by God. You are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works that He may be glorified. Just as surely as you are God's possession. All for the purpose of Him being glorified in your life and in your salvation. There is no greater incentive known to man for doing all that you do for the glory of God than to know that Christ put His own glory on the line in saving you. To that end, He doesn't just leave us as we are. He gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to ensure that we do grow in all the ways that we need to to serve 
and glorify Him. And so to that end, God is causing all things to work together to cause all who believe in Christ, all who are saved by Christ, all who were given to the Son by the Father to grow more and more in Christ's likeness. It's all for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of Christ. And there is no thing and there is no one in life that's more important than Christ being glorified in our salvation. Let's pray. Our most merciful Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that You have drawn us to Christ to believe in Him and that You have saved us by Your grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for Your glory alone, according to the Scriptures alone. Lord, we pray that You would give us the conviction to seek to glorify You in all that we do. Help us to see ourselves in light of these amazing truths that You have revealed in Your Word as we've seen today. And help us, O Lord, by the power of Your Spirit working within us, glorify Christ in our life and in our salvation. Give us courage to be set apart from the world. Give us wisdom to discern primary and secondary issues and the boldness that's necessary to stand on those primary issues, even when it means dividing from those who reject them. Oh, Father, we do pray that Christ would be glorified in our life and in our salvation. Help us to see that this is the highest calling in our lives, that we may live for and pursue that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.